Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And hello, welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. Before I bring on my guest, Rob Zwiatek, let me caution you people, we've had technical problems here. My internet is becoming, shall we say, unstable. And it has cut in and out a couple of times earlier today, which has nothing to do with the program now. Just warning you, in case I fade away, it's probably just an intermittent thing, thanks to the Internet. I'm going to be joined here uh, with Rob Swiatek. We, of course, are doing social distancing because he does not live in Iowa, nor do I live in Virginia. But we're doing our thing anyway. Uh, Rob has a degree in physics and spent his career at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office working on intellectual properties in a number of areas, including aeronautics and astronautics. His UFO involvement goes back to 1968 during what he called his larval stage, when the ongoing sightings in the University of Colorado UFO study permanently nailed his attention. Once he arrived in Washington, D.C., he joined the Fund for UFO Research and was subsequently elected to the Executive Committee. Around 2006, as the fund wound down due to the rise of the Internet and many other factors, he was asked to join MUFON's board of directors, and he continues to serve there today. Um, he wanted to note that although the fund, is st the fund still exists, it is largely dormant. Rob Zbiatek, welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. Hi, Kevin. Th thanks, thanks for having me on today. It's always a pleasure. Is there, uh, is there something in the um, introduction there that you'd like to add? Because <laughs> I know that's kind of an older one. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm well past my larval stage now. And, uh, but uh, no, otherwise, everything uh, is, is more or less, uh, you, you know, you can always shorten it to just say Rob Swiatek with the, uh, uh, on the board of MUFON, and he's been interested in UFOs a long time, and that should suffice. I'm not too critical about that <laughs> or so too picky about that. Let's put it that way. 
You haven't published a bunch of books and magazine articles you want to promote here. Well, well, you know, I, I, I did. That's curious you mentioned that because I have uh, I have co-authored, I guess might be a good word, a volume on 50 years of MUFON. And that came out a couple of years ago. I worked with a fellow named Roger Marsh on that, who used to be our editor, journal editor. And so, yeah, I do have, in a way, a stake in a book. So you could, I guess it can be purchased on uh, on Amazon. <laughs> well, that's a ringing endorsement. I, I, well, maybe you can well, get it. We it's, don't know. it's a good book. All sales go to MUFON, so they, they don't keep me apprised of, uh, oh, we sold, you know, $5 million last month or something like that. You know, it's uh, the kind of thing that I don't hear anything about, to be frank with you. <laughs> oh, well, as a writer of books, I uh, do look at the those figures once in a while to see how things are going. Uh, I think the way to start this off is there's been some, I guess, controversy about MUFON in the last couple of years, and we don't need to go into that. I was wondering how, how MUFON is faring in the world today. Well, it, it seems to be faring fairly well. Uh, Kevin, thanks, thanks for asking there. Uh, better than it was a year ago when, when you and I had our interview right around the, the start of the Troubles. And since then, it's gone smoothly. We have uh, Dave McDonald taking over as director and he's uh, and we've moved the uh, the headquarters from Irvine, California to Cincinnati. Took a little while, but all the stuff got there literally maybe three or four days ago, and took a month or so to to arrive. But they're setting up the office there, and uh, we have a symposium coming up next month, and cases keep flowing in. So, and and Dave cut back on a lot of the extraneous expenses that had been associated with the other headquarters. So financially, we're doing a little bit better. So uh, th there's not too much to complain about from an organizational point of view. Well, isn't it a major task to move the headquarters from California to Ohio? Oh, it's, a, it's a huge thing. And uh, they, they, they stacked all the stuff into a truck. And as I understand, despite like 250 boxes of stuff or more, it only filled up like half of the truck or one third of the truck. Th then the truck took a month to get from uh, Irvine or California to Cincinnati because it has to make other stops to fill up the other two thirds. Anyhow, we were thinking we weren't going to see those uh, the, the contents of the office here till Dave told me maybe three days ago, four days ago that it finally arrived. So yeah, it's it's a huge it's a huge uh, undertaking. Let's put it that way. Well, were the files and all of the the research materials located in Irvine as well, and that, that's all been transferred to Cincinnati? Yeah, most of them were, Kevin. They, they were in Irvine, but as I understand, uh, there's a certain remnant amount that always remained in Cincinnati, and I'm not sure what those constitute. They were in a hangar there. That was the basis for the Hangar One show, but they're in a hangar there at Lunkin Airport, Lunkin Airfield, and uh, maybe it's old records from, from the early days of Walt Andrews. I don't know, but the, the brunt of them was uh, was in uh, California and Irvine. Is a uh... And these are kind of questions that have interest me, and I'm not sure how how excited the audience are going is going to get to this, but but for me it's interesting. Is the format of the um, journal going to change now? No, the the format of the journal won't. Uh, I, I mean, it may change a little bit over time, but we 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 have made no real uh, changes to it since uh, Roger Marsh left as editor in uh, 2019, right about this time in 2019. And uh, Barbara, a woman named Barbara Sobrani took over, who is the daughter of uh, John Schusler. And she always did the uh, symposium proceedings every year. In fact, she's, she's working on them right now. So she stepped in as editor and um, she made some changes as she saw fit from her point of view back in 
late 2019. And so the concept of the magazine has sort of remained the same for the last two years. Uh, what I was saying is, um, Rob, yeah. the um, journal had struck me as somewhat commercial, a little snippets of sightings and things like that. And it, it didn't have the kind of um, content that it had in earlier years. And I wondered if it had gone back to a little bit more in-depth uh, reporting on UFO sightings than, than it had been doing recently. Uh, no, no, it hasn't, Kevin. That, 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 that part has stayed relatively the same. There, there, are, uh, there are short, as you put it, snippets, uh, encapsulations maybe uh, of, of sightings, but there aren't many. And it, it tends to be a different journal than it was back in 1985 or 1980. And even all you have to do is look back at the earlier ones, and you can see they, they were much more uh, content-rich in the early 80s. And at somewhere along the line in the early years of this century, one of the editors made a decision to uh, just make more space in the journal, cover things more lightly, uh, not have a page of remarks by, by the executive director, or two pages of remarks by the executive director, but just to have several paragraphs. And that's just how it stayed. Um, I, I don't know what to say there. I'm not in charge of, of journal stuff, but I, I, I would I would perhaps do things differently if, if, if it were under my control. But nonetheless, it what, what can I tell you? That's how it is. I was just I, I, I look at the journal uh, as I'm doing my research. I, I have the journal up through 2018, I think, uh, mm -hmm. on the computer. I've got the Avro bulletins. I have. Uh, IUR. Yeah, so do I. Mm -hmm. uh, all of these, all of these research materials on on the computer, which, when you think about it, is quite stunning, to have the, have that. Yeah, yeah. you got that right. I can carry it around in my pocket on a on a <laughs> one terabyte uh, hard uh, external hard drive as well. But I mean, it's it's a wonderful research tool, and I noticed as I do my research that you can go back into some of the older journals and get a great deal of in-depth information about a case and where to go and where to learn more about it. And when we get in today's environment, we don't have that kind of in-depth coverage, um, which I think might be a bit of a disservice to to the UFO crowd. Uh, I would think that the people who subscribe to the journal would be more interested in the in-depth look at, at UFO sightings as just yeah. a personal opinion. Yeah, well, that, that's, uh, that, that, that's an interesting observation, and I, I can't, I, I don't. I can't find fault with anything you really said there. I, I personally would just like sightings, but b back in those days, they had a, a lot of regular contributors to the journal who were not necessarily on the staff of the journal. People like Bud Hopkins or Richard Hall or uh, Len Stringfield, and and they they would just submit articles, more or less on a continuing basis, in-depth articles. We have had articles come in from Europe. Or and on, on again a, a, an in-depth look at a case, but for, for whatever reason, the decision was made to, to just make it a little bit lighter. P possibly they felt they didn't want to just make it too UFO-rich for people like you and I, you and me, who who would like in-depth reporting on cases, but they wanted it to appeal to people, maybe younger people who were just coming in and didn't want to get involved all in cases, you know, what, what happened uh, in South Africa, three pages of a case. I would like that, but uh, but that, that just, I, well, I don't I know, it's, it's, it, it changed, it morphed a little bit, and, and it's, it, it's a, a little bit of a different journal, but the same, they have columns, and, and these columns are sort of done each month by a person. 
we have a, a column called Think Tank, and then we have something that usually appears on the Electronic Journal by Fran Ridge on, on his Madar system, and we have the cases of interest. The same columns sort of are done each month, and they have been found to fill up the uh, 24 pages of the journal. Well, I would I would say that that I would think that somebody joining MUFON would be interested in the cases and the in-depth look at the cases. I mean, it's why you join the UFO organization is mm -hmm. to get that kind of information, and that uh, you would hope that it would be filtered a little bit through people who are well versed in the field, so that uh, rather than going on the internet looking this stuff up and you have to uh, uh, dig through piles and piles of bad information to get to the nuggets that the journal would be a place where you wouldn't have to do that. You could just pick it up and say, well, here's some well-researched uh, UFO cases. Yeah, well, I, again, that, that would be a wonderful thing. And I, I would suggest putting the ball in your court here that, and I'm serious here, I'm not trying to be flippant or anything, that you do write a letter to the editor saying basically what you just said. And maybe that needs to be said by someone in, in the world outside of the community of MUFON, that, hey, we're our, we're our in-depth in-depth reporting on maybe one case at a time or something like that. And we, we do get some scientific technical articles written by John Schussler that give overviews of cases. And we have, again, overviews of, of abduction reports. But uh, I, I think what you said should be or could be something that w would make a good letter to, to the editor. And maybe it would make some change or have an effect. Well, and I, mean, I appreciate I, I'll, you. I'll certainly re repeat this conversation to people. I'm not saying that it has. To, I'm not going to say anything, but I, I will mention that. Well, it was just it was just my thought, and I know mm -hmm. that one of the executive directors was moving toward a, a more inclusive attitude toward it, and trying to embrace a lot of what I would think of as more new age than it is really youthful. UFO-oriented materials mm -hmm. to kind of broaden the, the base of, of movement. I think Walt Andrus actually said at one point he wanted to embrace the new age a little bit more to bring in people. Uh, and, and I always thought that might be a bad way to go for an organization that was supposedly scientifically oriented to embrace some of the new age uh, material out there. Well, yeah, I, I, I agree completely with that. And, and I wouldn't want to see the journal go that way. I, I have put my two cents in over the past couple of years here on, on a number of articles that have appeared. And I'm not going to go into specifics on these uh, on this, but uh, it has had a little bit of, a, of an effect on the types of articles that are appearing. Well, we're going to have to take, a break, no longer appearing. Let's have to take a break here because it's time to do that. I'm uh, speaking with Rob Zwiatek, who's on the board of directors of MUFON. I am, of course, with Kevin Randall. The latest book is UFOs in the Deep State. And for those of you who would like to see it make number one in the Amazon bestseller list, please help me out. Uh, I would appreciate it just so we could move that uh, book by Jacques Vallée off that spot. We'll be back right after this. You are listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. Please stick around. out of your time and end each day feeling good. That's why we pioneered exclusive lawnmower suspension technology, allowing for full speed mowing, 
even over the roughest terrain. Grow your business by getting more done in less time with Ferris. Ferris, work hard, feel good. Visit Ferris at Advantage Lawn Equipment and McGuire's Distinctive Trucks. As a social worker, you can become an advocate for those who can't. Earn your master's in social work degree online to learn strategies to connect diverse populations with the critical resources they need to improve their well-being, whether it's in a hospital, community service agency, or another setting. What do you think making a difference as a social worker looks like? GCU offers over 250 high-quality online programs like this one. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. I'm sitting here with Rob Zwiatek. We're talking uh, basically MUFON at the moment. We were kind of hammering the journal a little bit. Um, it is a good research tool for those of you who have access to a complete run of the MUFON journals. I've, I've used it uh, quite a bit uh, from, from its early inception as Skylook to the point where it's now a much more glossy magazine type thing, more of a people-oriented, people magazine orientation than a... Uh, than, than it had been in a scientific orientation in the past. But I think it's time to move on from that. So what I'm going to say, uh, Rob, and thank you for joining me once again. My the, pleasure. Uh, the sightings, what kind of sightings are coming in now? I mean, we used to have lots of subsets like electromagnetic effects and crop circles and abductions and landing traces and cattle mutilations. Is there a trend that you see now in, in the UFO field, or is it just a, the same sort of scattergun um, effect? I'd say the latter. Hey, Kevin, one more comment on, on the closing, on, on before I quite close out the journal thing. I thought a little bit during the, uh, the commercial break, and it's part of it, too, probably has to do with the Internet and the, the wide availability of access to sightings and other data on the Internet that has compelled the... Uh, change in format, not only of the MUFON journal, but the uh, other MUFON publication, uh, other UFO publications as well. Some of them have, haven't even really survived the, the, the coming of the internet in the beginning of this century. And like IUR, for example, I thought was, was a, a fantastic publication, no longer out there. But uh, that, that's all I have to say on that, that well, I would, I'm sure I would... the internet has something to do with all this, but... It... <laughs> And I would say certainly, certainly it does. But I think my point was simply this: you to get to the good information, you have to wade through a lot of crap mm -hmm, on the internet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, well, yeah, it's uh, true. And I, I think if you had a more a more central centralized location to go, I think that would draw people in because they don't have to wade through all that and say, "Well, is this true? Uh, what is this guy saying? Is it false? Uh, what's the? Uh, has any of this stuff been vetted?" I mean, on the internet, there used to be a commercial on TV that just cracked me up where. The woman was going to be dating a French model, and the guy shows up, and he's a real dweeb. And he and she says, "Well, you can't put anything on the internet that's not true. Um, and you can put everything. Well, they're, they're, no, you can't put anything on the internet that the big tech doesn't like, I guess anymore." Yeah, that's a probably a better way of putting it. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so anyway, let's moving back to to sighting reports. What what's the trend in the sightings? What where are we going on that? Yeah, let let, let me give you a couple. Uh, dry, dry numbers here to begin with, but just to show you that what we're what we're talking about here in terms of uh, t total number of sightings, and then I can get into a couple of cases just to uh, I, I, there's a couple of interesting ones I found. But 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 anyhow, 
I'll, I'll just start with uh, 2018, for example, as uh, to, to get the trend here of the last uh, three years. In 2018, events that occurred in that calendar year and that were reported to MUFON, uh, total uh, just around 4,400 cases, of which 29% were, were found to be unknown. So 4,400 cases MUFON received U.S. events in, in 2018. And then events dated in 2019, the next year, pre-COVID year, still U.S. events, we had 4,000, just a touch over 4,000, with again, amazingly, 29% unknown. Then in the year of COVID, last year, MUFON got, uh, again, of cases that were said to have occurred within the calendar year 2020, of 4,700 went up a little bit from the, the previous few years, with the unknown percentage dipping down to 23. And this year, uh, January through uh, June 30th, uh, just about uh, 2,000 cases, 30, 30 under that. So we, we might have 4,000 this year, but we have 2,000 as of uh, the end of June with a 19% uh, unknown rate. So that's how cases stand there. With respect to um, CE2 cases that involve electromagnetic effects on vehicles, uh, it, it's, that, that, that's just a, uh, a pipe dream to think that these things are coming back anytime soon. They just haven't occurred since the 70s and the, the 70s probably were, the, were the, 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 the peak of the curve for those kind of cases and, and to a certain extent in the 80s. But we rarely get any car stopping cases anymore or any kind of cases with electromagnetic effects. Uh, well, you, you mentioned you entity mentioned, sightings, as they call them, that practically you none. You mentioned Fran Ridge and his MADAR. Um, MADAR, of course, is a detection system using magnetism as one of the factors mm -hmm. for uh, um, detecting the UFO. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it records um, magnetic anomalies, uh, spikes in radiation, things like that. Uh, uh, are you getting cases that come from the MADAR detection? Yeah, and that, that, that was one of the cases I, I was going to, and in fact, that was going to be the first case I spoke about. Uh, and if you want to go into that, I, I certainly can, because I knew you liked the, we all like these kind of cases, and I, I knew you wanted to speak about that a little bit. But yes, we, we did get one. They're rare as hen's teeth. But, but here's, Fran's devices go off all the time, all over the country. And he's got like uh, 120 or so in the field now, and about 120 operating. And I have one of them, for example. But basically what happens is one gets an alert either from an, an alarm going off or you get a, uh, a notice on email that your uh, MADAR device, as we call them, has been triggered. Usually that involves the magnetic field changing or the compass direction, something changing a, a compass inside MADAR. And newer MADAR units have even a barometric pressure gauge. But, but anyhow, a, a change in the magnetic field sets the thing off once it goes past a certain uh, deviation. And... In the most, for the, for the most part, e even if you are aware of the fact that your radar goes off and you run outside, no one sees anything. But back in April of 2020 in, in Pennsylvania, we finally got the uh, finally got a radar visual, as we call them. This fellow and his uh, grandson had a radar in their house. They were pretty assiduous about uh, monitoring the thing and all the time and, and keeping up with any updates to it. And it suddenly went off one night around 10 o'clock or so when they were watching TV, the alarm goes off. 
and the, the grandfather runs outside. The grandson runs to, uh, to the room where they have the Madar to reset it, to stop the alarm. He, the, the grandson found he couldn't stop it. But the, father ran out, the, grand, the father ran outside and actually saw a large spherical object about 30 feet in diameter just on the border of his property. They live in a rural area. It's not an urban area. And it, it turned out to, there were two, two of these spheres or, or, disc, or globes or whatever side by side moving off across, away from him across the property. So here we had, finally had a case where the Madar went off and there was a visual component to this sighting, you know, a few hundred feet away from the fellow. And adjacent dogs and animals and a, and a farm were in an uproar, you know, kicking the stalls and all this kind of stuff. So that was a good uh, CE2 case with an electrical component to it. Well, I think that, um... From what I've read from from the Madar reports, they do, as you say, they do go off all the time, but they look for correlations Correct. between the device going off and sightings in the area. And there have been some cases where the people operating the Madar may not have a sighting, but someone in the area has a sighting. And it may be a few minutes after the alert or a few minutes before the alert, uh, the sighting, sighting is made. Um, yeah, that, that, that has occurred a number of times, you are correct. And the other thing that struck me was that that um, sometimes, I don't know how, how big a range the MADAR nodes have, how far out they can reach to, to detect the anomaly. Yeah, yeah that, 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 that doesn't really have an answer because of the fact that it's, it's not an active device, it's, it's a passive device. So if, if the magnetic field changes by a certain amount, and I forget what that what that is, but Fran's got it uh, calibrated for each for each machine. It doesn't matter if the if the impetus for the change in the field is is 500 miles away. If it's enough to raise the field or change the field a little bit around the Madar unit, it'll go off. And uh, so so it's got an in a sense it's got an infinite range because um, it's not actively sending a signal out. It's you know it's just it's like all ears. Let's put it that way. And and that's part of the problem that I think. Uh, we haven't uh, resolved with Fran, or Fran maybe hasn't resolved it even in his own head, is, is what constitutes a correlation? Is it a sighting that occurs two hours after a MADAR unit goes off? Is it a sighting that occurs in the same state as a MADAR unit uh, when it goes off? If, if a sighting occurs in the same state but 500 miles away at the same time, is that a correlation? And uh, I don't think anybody has any answers there. That's why I've always said, and I've told Fran a couple of times, but other people I'm sure have mentioned this, that the best things for your MADAR unit, Fran, are when a MADAR unit goes off and the owner of the unit goes outside the house and at that time sees an object, an anomalous object, close by. Uh, that's all we can really count as a really good correlation at this point. But something that occurs three hours before the unit goes off or five hours after it goes off is a little uh, a little tenuous to put it mildly i think it's interesting to to report on the correlations even if it's quite a distance away and uh, several hours before or later i think it's an interesting thing to look at mm -hmm. oh absolutely I'm kind, of, I'm kind of on board with you that i need something there the the operator or his or somebody in the local area it doesn't even have mm -hmm. to be the operator somebody in the local area sees the object about the same time right Right. I think I think Fran has talked about the problem being that 
there are no really good reporting centers um, that that you can access. Um, I don't know how good the the um, National UFO Reporting Center is in in gathering the data, but if the person who sees the object doesn't know about that or doesn't know who to report it to, then you don't you can't get a correlation, even though there might be a really great one out there uh, for an object that was just over the horizon from where the where the operator was. A absolutely. Uh, a lot of these, the, the ones that do go off, could actually represent pretty good sightings in, in the nearby area. Um, but, but yeah, if, if, if police normally made a habit of, if they got a report, immediately logging a report or calling, log, log, logging into the MUFON CMS system and just re reporting a sighting from a person, or if s somehow they could call Davenport and log a sighting, we'd have a much better uh, grasp on uh, what sightings are actually affecting the Madars. Yeah, but, but be, to be fair to the police, yet. to be fair to the police and the way things are going, they no, I, probably I, I know. have I, a lot of other things to do that no, are much I, more important. I understand. I, I, I'm not I'm not trying to. Uh, I mean, if we had in, in, input somehow from 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 people who had a sighting, uh, they'd almost immediately have to know about MUFON and go on and log log the sighting in the CMS. That's I don't, I don't know what else can I say, you know. Well, I, no, I understand. I just this is just one of the it's problems in looking through the Madar information and the correlations between it. I was, I was struck by by a couple of things as we mentioned that sometimes the distance seems excessive and sometimes the time frame seems seems excessive, but I also understand that that the then that was why I asked about the range of the Madar system. If the guy if the thing works out to twenty miles, then it's very very simple that the object was seen twenty miles away and the person operating the Madar node couldn't see it because it was too far away. Yeah, and no, it's, it's, it's like I say, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's measuring the ambient electromagnetic field. If something far away is, has the ability to, in a sense, raise the whole ambient magnetic field for hundreds of miles in, in diameter, then it will, it'll, it'll trigger all the MADAR units that happen to fall within that radius. And, well, the uh, other thing, and, and we'll talk about that when we come back from the break, because we're gonna have to do that in just a moment. But one of the things that, uh, I was looking at is, do we know there's a big electromagnetic effect? Is it electromagnetic uh, produced by some of the UFOs? And I, I think the answer, of course, is yes, based on information that I've been able to gather. But, you know, and, and I mentioned this, I think, to Fran a couple of times as well, that, you know, uh, well, there, there were UFO detectors being produced in the 1960s. I think uh, Jim Lorenzen mm -hmm. um, came up with a design for one. And I think I even put the design up on my blog so that people could take a look at that. I, I'm gonna to have to take a break here. I see that I'm really talking too much about uh, this sort of thing. I would, did want to mention that there are other fine programs about the paranormal that can be found at xzbn.net. So take a look at the listings at the side of the website um, and you're gonna find something that's gonna trick your, I'm sure trip your trigger I am, on the other hand, a big fan of A Different Perspective, but I'm biased in that respect. We will be back right after this with Rob Zwiatek, so please stick around.
family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. I am joined by Rob Zwiatek. We're talking UFOs. We were talking MADAR, which is a detection system for people to see UFOs. And when we went away, and I, I know the answer to this question, I believe I know the answer. What suggested to, I guess, Jim Lorenzen in the beginning and Fran, Fran Ridge, I want to call him Fran Madar, Fran Ridge, later on, that there is a big magnetic component to some UFO sightings? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 there's, there seems to be a correlation. That's occurred for, for a long time. Uh, it's, it's easy to measure deviations in the magnetic field. That, that, that helps to make a detector. Um, Fran now, like I mentioned earlier, has a barometric uh, sensor in some of his newer units. So if, if the pressure goes up or conceivably goes down an inordinate amount, it would trigger the unit. However, this is this me uh, speaking my opinion. I'm not sure that there's necessarily a barometric effect associated with all UFO sightings. It's beyond a doubt that there that there has been with some, but th that's a, a real small minority of cases. Um, but the number of uh, sensors that, that, that are available on the, on the market that Fran can cram into a little unit and still sell it for a very reasonable price is rather limited. So you have to start out with some simple things and with at least one thing, magnetism, you know that UFOs seem to affect. Um, temperature, yeah, yes and no, uh, sometimes pressure, yes and no sometimes. Uh, the presence or absence of light, that would be a good one. But but again, you run into a lot of problems then with just ambient light that has nothing to do with UFOs. Someone turning a porch light on, a car driving by, you know, that's going to set off the units. So Fran faces a lot of uh, pro problems here with, with other types of sensors. And he's sort of has maneuvered adroitly around one of the all of these things to come up with a, a, a unit that at least gives you some indication that there might be an anomalous event occurring in your area and it's all contained in a box the size of a you know pack of cigarettes or just a, a little, little bit larger he's done, he's done a wonderful job in, in terms of marketing this thing and, and 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 getting it out there to to many of the states in the union but uh, you know kevin if he if he were to get many units in in in, in a state then we probably would have a lot better chances of really getting correlations between MADAR units and sightings. If every state had 
20 MADAR units scattered around it, and then a sighting occurred. One, a sighting would then be much closer to, one would think, a MADAR unit, and maybe we could come up with you know, be better, better correlations. But it seems to me two, two things come, come to mind. One is, uh, do changes in the magnetic field of the Earth affect the MADAR units? And, and have we ever looked at something like that, maybe triggering the units? Um, and the second thing is, not all UFOs seem to uh, have a magnetic effect component to them, because we have an awful lot of sightings where the UFO is very close to the, well, to the cars of, of the people, the witnesses didn't seem to affect the cars or the operation right. of the cars uh, or compasses or other magnetic type devices that might be uh, carried along. So, I, you know, has, has that been looked at at all? Yeah, well, I would think so. The, 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 with respect to the, your first observation, the, 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 the magnetic uh, rise can't, can't be gradual over, t over like three or four hours. It has to be a, a, a real a spike, let's put it that way, occurring over a very short time in increment, two or three or four seconds, which the Earth's gravitational field doesn't normally change in that short a period of time. So something that occurs over the long period of time, yeah, a fan might have to recalibrate them, but it needs to be a spike, a sharp spike. The, the magnetic field suddenly causes, uh, you know, a, a, a switch to close in his device uh, and, and, and cause the alarm to go off. And with respect to your second uh, point about uh, some UFOs don't have, have electromagnetic uh, effects on things, absolutely that's the case. But when Fran was designing these things, he had to start somewhere, you know what I mean? And like I said, yeah, you could, you could pick a light, you could pick pressure but but what whatever you whatever you pick for your box even if you pick three or four of these devices it's not going to cover all ufo cases because some ufos as perverse as this phenomenon is aren't going to exhibit any of those changes to the ambient uh, field whether it's the electromagnetic field whether it's to the pressure field whether it's to temperature whether it's to light uh whether it's to uh, just the gravitational field in you know as opposed to the magnetic field changing, we had that same problem when we did the uh, the amp units to to monitor uh, abductions or conceived abductions in a person's house. What sensors do we put in a box? And you just have to make at a certain point uh, an educated guess. And uh, you can't put all the sensors in the world into the box, but if you have to pick four, what are they going to be? So yeah, we picked we picked what we thought were. Uh, hallmarks of an abduction, let's put it that way, and uh, put those sensors in the box. And that's what Fran did. Well, no, I'm not, I'm not criticizing Fran at all. I think it's yeah. a wonderful thing to do, and it's a way to become mm -hmm. proactive in the UFO field. You're not waiting for uh, somebody to call you and say, well, I saw a UFO last night. It's You're alerted to it. You go outside, and there it is with any luck at all type thing. But you open up an interesting thing. You talk about a similar type um a device or a similar type project with abductions that you had some kind of a sensor array that would alert uh, not alert you to abductions but record maybe yeah well this this was now 20 20 plus years ago the abduction monitoring project that that the mufon and kufos and the fund at, at, at that time uh, uh collabor uh collaborated on and yeah we did have these boxes built and put in you know put in a number of uh houses uh, you know that, that that's another program in the sense that it, it, we could talk a long time just based on uh, on that that subject of the box but yes this subject was 
we, we did do that. We put sensors in the box. We had uh, people fill out journals for three months at a time, I think it was. And uh, each night they fill out journal out uh, the next day as to what they remember from the previous night. And we tried to figure out whether any correlations occurred between uh, the units on the nights they said they thought something happened to them, long and short of it. Well, what were any positive results? Well, the, the bad the bad news is out. The bad news is that the the funding ran out, and, and we we lacked twenty five thousand dollars to have the the results looked at. But and and I don't I, I know everyone's throwing up their hands because that's the kind of thing we hear in the UFO field all the time. Oh, I had a piece of metal that a UFO dropped, but gee, I seem to have lost it, or I can't find those pictures I took of my close encounter. But this data is still there. And uh, Mark Rodiger and I, on, on a regular basis, discuss it and discuss finding someone to analyze this data. And and now that's, that, that has started up again. And, and Mark thinks he has someone that might be able to do this very tedious work. And they, they have to be a, a, almost a professional statistician or a PhD statistician to look at this data and find correlations. But we're still holding out hope that this is going to occur. But uh, looking at it just as an overall picture, ballpark type thing, as any positive results? Yeah, there were a couple. Uh, there, there were there were some, uh, Kevin. Uh, and, and, and they, they, the, the one that I'm thinking of occurred on a sort of a shakedown test of one of the boxes before they ha the program had actually started. We just had a couple test boxes out there, and uh, my recollection of it is the woman uh, saw an anomalous light outside her window at night, traveling horizontally, left to right, whatever. And, uh, but it was not an ordinary light that she was used to seeing. And it did indeed leave, uh, leave an effect on the box. I can't remember, was it, in, was it in the G field? Was it in the electromagnetic field? Was it in the, the, the visual light field? I, probably the latter, but I'm not 100% sure. But yeah, we, we had a couple of correlations that, that could be eyeballed uh, without having to spend uh, you know, five hours on the case. Was uh, was this woman, was she an abductee? Yes, she was. Um, all the people we chose for the, uh, to, to host the boxes were, uh, were abductees to the best of our knowledge. They were interviewed uh, extensively by myself and, and Mark and, and, and maybe a few other people to make sure that they met the definition, quote unquote, of, of being an experiencer or an abductee. And, uh, so, so we had uh, th 13 boxes, I think it was, and, um, well, excuse me, we had maybe six boxes, then we had 13 to 15 abductees that uh, that hosted these boxes for uh, varying amounts of time. Well, what about a control group? Uh, we, we thought of that, but no, we did not have, have controls at this, at, at this point in the, uh, we, we just put it in the houses of people that we felt were abductees. Uh, the, the, the control groups crossed, uh, obviously came to mind at the time, but we, we just couldn't do everything. We had a limited budget and we paid uh, the person involved. We, we paid a full-time person to monitor these boxes. That was Tom Dooley. And, uh, but, you know, we stuck with abductees to begin with, but a control group is something that you would obviously do in any uh, well, I was gonna further say project. I would I would think that if there's no control group that the results would be skewed at that point. You just you cannot make any positive 
um, deductions from that data if you don't have some kind of control group to see if there's something else going on? Well, well, you, you can to a certain extent because, uh, we, first of all, we were looking for a wow signal and not, not some subtle background change. But what, what we did do, and uh, this isn't a control group, but in every house in, in which one of these units was located, we would have the the abductee uh, turn on all the electrical devices in the house and while the unit was on, while the box was going. This took a couple hours, and I did I participated in a couple of those with abductees in our area here. So if if the person had a light on over their bed, if they suddenly decided to switch it on in the night to, to read, it's not going to we, we will recognize the signature that that light makes on the box. What effect does it produce on the box? What effect does it produce when they turn the TV on? Uh, if somebody goes with the sweeper, you know, this type of thing, everything we could think of uh, to, to rule out just being fooled by some ordinary household event, uh, the garage door going up, the microwave going on, that, that would fool us. We knew the signatures of all those things ahead of time for that particular house. So we could rule out a, an awful lot of uh, anomalies that might occur on any given night. But what I'm thinking about is more of a psychological event that um, may be witnessed, experienced by someone who is not an abductee. And what springs to mind immediately, and I hesitate to bring it up in this mm -hmm. context because everybody in the world will send me nasty letters about it, but sleep paralysis would, would be something that might give you a false positive. Well, we didn't have, yeah, I don't, if it affected the temperature in the room, if it affected the light level in the room, if it affected the the G field in the room, or uh, I don't know, the electromagnetic thing, we think we had an electromagnetic thing, just like friend did. If sleep paralysis affected any one of those things, you are correct. I'm not aware that it does, but uh, we did not have physiological sensors, telemetric well, sensors on the person while they were sleeping. That we did not do. Well, we didn't have a camera. We didn't have a camera in the room either. We just could record the light level in the room, but we couldn't record conversation, but we could record the absence or presence of sound. Yeah. Well, what I'm thinking about, though, is is um, the, the person keeps a journal. Did anything anomalous happen to you during the night? And he or she writes down this anomaly that they experience. And I'm merely suggesting that sleep paralysis could be such an anomaly Right. Um, it doesn't that's and 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 do well, the well, absolutely right, but but, but yeah yeah. In, in that case, when when the the investigator goes on, they they might say, well, she recorded a strange event. It absolutely had no effect on the box, or we didn't see any electromag the electromagnetic signatures of anything on the box. So, so yeah, one of the explanations is that nothing happened, or sleep paralysis happened, but not an actual quote abduction unquote, such as we might understand them. And but we don't know if there is any kind of um, outside influence uh, in the room when when the abduction takes place that would record it on the box. I'm going to hold that until next segment simply because I'm running up against the, the break here. So we'll be talking about this abduction problem in just a moment. I do want to say that um, for those of you who are interested, please take a look at UFOs in the Deep State, which talks about um, 
how the government has kind of suppressed the information about UFOs and why they may be doing it. I think some answers in that book that people may not be aware of. I will be back right after this with Rob Zwiatek. We'll be talking about UFOs and alien abduction, so please stick around. Zwiatek, sorry, Rob, didn't mean to mispronounce your name, is the guest here on A Different Perspective. We were talking about alien abductions, and I kind of um, botched the question, and I will rephrase it here in uh, this segment about um, abductions and the, and the possibility of detecting uh, with the instrumentality an abduction. Uh, Bud Hopkins talks about the aliens being able to pass through walls. I use a door to do it, but they can come, apparently come through the walls. And that strikes me that they may be able to control the environment, which would keep them from leaving any sort of physical trace of their being there. So um, there is there would be no way to know whether a person was actually abducted or if it was an episode of sleep paralysis, if there's nothing on the... Um, on the detector. Well, well, yeah, of, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we took our best guess that at least some abductions seem to involve a flash of light. Uh, we put a thermometer in there just because some people said that the temperature got real low during an abduction. We put, uh, you know, uh, an electromagnetic detector in there to see if the if, if if the magnetic field changed because again that was sometimes as we spoke about earlier correlated with with UFO sightings. So we made a best guess on what types of 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 ambient features of of our surroundings an alien abduction might affect. But you're right. If if they don't affect any of those, then sure, all the abductions uh, there could be a million abductions and we'll never pick up the trace of any of them if they can just leave a little seam reach through and, and pull you out and close the seam up and then put you back and, and open the seam and close it again nothing ever shows up sure uh but well, john john carpenter talked about um video cameras monitoring the abductees at one mm -hmm. point I'm, I'm, i mean that was a different project than you were right. involved with but it seemed that he never came up with any evidence that something always went wrong. Is, is, is that a correct assessment? Well, that, that, that's, as I, that's as I recall it. I don't know if I associated the name John Carpenter, Carpenter with that, that viewpoint, but I've heard, I think it was Dave Jacobs also mentioned that he tried several experiments. Some of his ab, abductees or experiencers tried that experiment with cameras, you know, back in the 90s or whatever, and somehow the cameras were mysteriously broken or the the, the person would turn it off in the night. Um, this was something that we did, again, devote some time to discussion while we were designing the box. And you run into just a lot of moral and ethical problems with putting a camera in the room, which could have been yeah, done. Yeah, I understand that, that completely. So, but but, but that nonetheless, completely. We, we didn't do that. But uh, but that that still remains to be done. I mean, that's that, that still remains to be done. I don't think we have any closure on that because putting a camera in the room has been tried so f few um, amount of times that it's not enough to, to make any, to, to get any results from, to, to, to make some judgments on. 
But I, th I think the yeah, point- You could have it outside the house, you know, there's, there's a number of things you could do. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't necessarily have to be on the bedroom, in the bedroom. Right. It could right. be in other areas of the house or, or in the neighbor's house or something yeah, like well, yeah, that. Yeah, and then you, the, the complexity of the project, at least at that time, picks up enormously then. You have to get another house involved. If it's mounted on a pole, someone has to get permission to put it there and check up on it every day. And back in 1995 or 2000, uh, we didn't have the Wi-Fi stuff and Bluetooth and all this kind of thing. So any kind of a camera would almost have had to have a cassette in it, uh, or at the very least, conceivably an early flash drive. But it, someone would have to go up and replace that drive every couple of days or, or, or uh, how, however often they thought they got results. And the complexities increased well, logarithmically. Well, I was going to say, in, in, in all fairness, I, I think we have to look at that a lot of these projects are self-funded. We don't mm -hmm. have the government um, pot to draw on that right. seems to have endless funds to uh, follow up on all of these sorts of things. So I understand the problems, the logistical problems with doing some of this, but I'm also a little bit concerned that some of these things have been tried for literally decades uh, and it, with very little results. But I will say one thing. Back in the um, 1950s, late 1940s, late, not say 1950s, Ed Rupel was talking about the green fireballs over New Mexico, and they wanted to put cameras up. And uh, they, he said that they only were able to afford one camera to put it, and every time there was a, a sighting, they would move the camera, which is, of course, the dumb thing to do. Hmm. But he said, we never had any results. But if you go and you read his book carefully, apparently they did get a picture once. And I've never been able to find that picture. Yeah, I don't know, I, I, I don't know if that's out there. Bruce Maccabee has written uh, uh, at length, I think, on that very episode you're talking about in one of his books, where the information acquired from at least one event was quite interesting. That the object was at 100,000 feet or something like that. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I, it's been a while since I read that particular portion in Bruce's book. Uh, but it's probably worth checking on to find out for sure. And they also talked about that, the same thing, putting diffraction grading cameras, at least in airplanes, during the 52 overflights over Washington. That was one of the things that came out, I think, during the, uh, the, the famous uh, Samford press conference there at the end of July, where they said, oh, we're coming up with putting these, these cameras on, and, and they're going to be fairly inexpensive, and uh, each, each one will be 200 bucks, kind of expensive for that time. But nothing ever came of that, to my knowledge. Or if it came to it, we don't know about it. Or if it did, yeah, we, we don't know. But yeah, and, they, and, and they didn't have to mention it at the press conference, but they did. So once you bring it up, you should be prepared to then get questions asking what are the results. Well, but, but you also have to remember you've got you've got an awful lot of people suppressing the information and the reporters being too sophisticated to believe in flying saucers. So they don't have sometimes don't ask the follow up questions you would expect mm -hmm. you have to answer, especially in that time frame. Uh, not quite so much today. So the, the the real point is some experimentation was attempted to gather data from abductees, experiencers, but a lack of funding, I guess, has um, caused its failure. That that's that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I'll follow, follow on funding. That's correct. Because from what you said, it just didn't seem like it was they, they did enough of it to make it worthwhile. But uh, uh, well, you guys did enough of it. To we, make we, it we, we knew that the sample size should be considerably larger. But, you know, remember, Kevin, one person was being paid, Tom Dooley, who did this on a full time basis. The rest of us were all volunteers with our jobs. And and then th there was a limited amount of money. So we 
we we did the best we could well, with I, the amount we had, you know. I've had I've had any number of conversations about this with skepticals, skeptics in the in the community. Who are the skeptical community is what I was going to say, but before I got tongue tagged there, mm -hmm. the um, the point simply is. Um, if we had the resources, then these things would have been fully funded and we might have gotten some sort of results or we may have not gotten any results at all, which would suggest that there's maybe something else going on than aliens about right. people or whatever. Right. But it may have given us some scientific knowledge that we didn't have about uh, unusual phenomenon. Well, that's and, that's that's a good way of putting it. All of us went, were not none of us were open. We were all open minded in the sense of maybe something will occur. Maybe it won't. But this is an attempt to find out if anything's occurring. How long did the project last? The project lasted, well, the, the, the actual part, part with the units being in people's homes probably lasted about a year or so. But just getting the, the funding together and getting, we had to meet with uh, the designer of the box. We had to have a, a, a circuit boards designed and everything like this for the box. So it's, the, the whole thing probably went three to four years. You know, from from having nothing to, to you know, to having uh, had the box in 13 homes, this type of thing, around 2001 or 2000, I think is when it ended. So uh, at this point, we're, we're, we're doing nothing more with the abduction project then? Well, recently there has been, you know, Mark is maybe, and I, I might be mischaracterizing this, but I, I think he has found someone who is willing to look at the rather gargantuan amount of data that this thing took in because each box recorded 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It didn't, we didn't turn them off. And so there's an enormous amount to look at and uh, to terabytes probably. And so, someone has been found, I think, who was willing to give a stab at this. This will be about maybe the third person or so that said they want to do that. And uh, each of uh, the previous ones backed out because the project is huge. But you know, hope springs eternal. And, and this time seems pretty good, so we may yet get an analysis of this data. I'm, I mean, but, I'm hoping but, we do. But the point is we're not gathering data anymore. Oh, no, no. The, the, the data, data gathering stopped uh, 20 years ago. Okay, and then the, I think this is going to have to be the final question um, that we ask about this. The abduction phenomenon used to be very prevalent in the UFO community. It seems to have been reduced somewhat. Is it as active as it used to be, or is my analysis correct? We're not having as many reports of abduction. I, I, I don't know, Kevin, because this is something that uh, you and I, I would like to have a conversation with you just about this subject. But I, I'm, I'm really annoyed because I don't, the people who are doing abduction research don't seem to write too many articles on recent stuff, what numbers they have, what types of events they're recording, what the features are of the abductions. So no, I, I, I've seen a couple abduction uh, articles come out in recently printed things, and I did not learn one thing I didn't know back in 2000. So it's enormously frustrating, and this is a, a particular uh, aggravation of mine that we're not we're not getting too much information on what currently is the status of abductions. Quickly, quickly, Calvin Parker and his latest books. What do you think about that? Well, to be honest with you, I haven't read his latest book, although I have it. Uh, so I, I'm always uh, a little leery of books that come out uh, 40 years, or yeah, almost 50 years after the event. And so as I'm, I more or less go with what Calvin reported back uh, right when the uh, when the Pascagoula case occurred back there in 1973. 
what he said in the initial, you know, a couple months after that. So okay. I think it's, to me, I think it's a fairly good case. Well, fair enough. Uh, Rob, thank you for taking time to speak with me today. Uh, we're just flat out of time. Appreciate the information you've uh, shared with us. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much, and you have a good rest of the day. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> well, you've been listening to Rob Zwiatek. We've been talking about the state of MUFON. We've been talking about MADAR. We've been talking about uh, abductions, which I think uh, sort of interesting to see where things are going, because it, it seems to me that the trend is kind of down throughout the UFO field at the moment, and it may be that we just are focusing too much on the government uh, investigation and the UAPs and the Navy footage and that sort of thing, and to the exclusion of some of the other cases which might be of benefit to take a look at it. And I don't know how many government agencies are involved in that sort of thing, and if they're really making the effort that they claim to be making. I have a, a very little hope that it's going to go anywhere of importance. I looked at the um, nine-page report that came out on June 25th, which, by the way, is the anniversary of the Custer Massacre, another great disaster in American history. Um, and and uh, it struck me as a fairly average high school report. It really didn't tell us anything. We didn't learn anything from it. Well, we had 144 reports. Well, is that 144 cases or reports? Were there multiple reports about from one case? How many cases were they? Did we learn anything there? There supposedly is a classified section. John Greenwald suggests it's 17 pages. Um, Lou Alexandro is suggesting it's... 70 pages. So we really don't know until we can get some kind of reading on what is in it and if it is any more valuable than the nine pages that were presented to Congress. I think it's a kind of a tragedy that we're doing the same things today that we were doing 75 years ago. I look at the uh, what's going on now is kind of twining 2.0, twining investigating UFOs in 1947, suggesting we need more information, we need to click collect more data, and that's where we are today. Uh, we need to collect more data, we need to do more analysis. Uh, so we're moving toward twining 2.0, and I fear we're gonna end up with Condon 2.0. So well, we looked at it, there's nothing to it, let's go home, that kind of thing. I, I think that's where we're going. If you take a look at UFOs in the deep state, however, I think you'll see how that information has been manipulated and how it's uh, been hidden from, from the public and the purposes for the continued secrecy. I think that's an important thing that we need to look at, the continued secrecy. Why is this stuff still being held secret? There are classified sections. Doesn't mean there's alien visitation, just means there's classified stuff there. And uh, we need to have a look at that, or at least some explanation of what uh, is going on there. That's really all I've got. Next week, I'm going to be talking to um, Bob Schaefer. We're going to be talking to a skeptic about these sorts of things as well, getting the other side of the uh, the coin. So please uh, check in for next week. Uh, you have been listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network, and I'll be back in 167 hours with more incredible information. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>